barely clinging by a thread, but holding on to the goodness of Christ and others of us in a really good and bright season. If you're not a Christian, we just want you to know that there is hope because Jesus died for sinners like you and I and rose from the dead for our salvation and for our life. My name is PJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church and one of the members here. Uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. This sermon was supposed to be preached last week, and so you're not really getting an Advent Christmassy sermon. We're getting another mission sermon. So Jose did a great job last week of filling in last minute. So thank you for that. And I don't know if it's up online yet, is it? I don't think it's online because I know our internet was down. But um, uh, do you know if it's online yet, Jose? Okay, I don't know if it's online yet, it's not, but we need to, to get that online. I haven't heard it yet, but I heard it was really encouraging. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. It's on page 552 on the Pew Bible, the, hard, the black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn to page 552 there if you don't have your own Bible. When I say Psalm 147, 147 is the... The psalm, that's the big number, and then we're going to look at all 20 verses, and the verse numbers are the small numbers. Psalm 147. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is 150 psalms, and the last five psalms are all praise psalms. They all begin and end with hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Let us praise Yahweh. And so let's read this hallelujah psalm. This call to praise Yahweh from Psalm 147. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different from your own English mainstream translation. Hear God's word. Hallelujah. How good it is to sing to our God, for praise is pleasant and lovely. Yahweh the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. He counts the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. Yahweh the Lord helps the oppressed but brings the wicked to the ground. Sing to Yahweh with thanksgiving. Play the lyre to our God who covers the sky with clouds, prepares rain for the earth, and causes grass to grow on the hills. He provides the animals with their food and the young ravens what they cry for. He is not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a warrior. The Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love, exalt Yahweh, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your city gates and blesses your children within you. He endows your territory with prosperity or peace, shalom. He satisfies you with the finest wheat. He sends his command throughout the earth his word runs swiftly. He spreads snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He throws his hailstones like crumbs. Who can withstand his cold? He sends his word and melts them. He unleashes his winds and the water flows. 
He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. He has not done this for every nation. They do not know his judgments. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father in heaven, we just sang to each other that unless you build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless you preach a sermon, unless you speak powerfully, unless you open our eyes, unless you unstop our deaf ears, unless you soften the calluses in our hearts, we listen in vain. We meditate in vain. We teach and preach in vain. We waste our time. And so, Father, we are desperate for you. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Incline our hearts to your testimony and not to earthly gain. Incline our hearts to what this word is calling us to. Keep us faithfully stayed on your word and on Christ by your spirit's power. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your faithful covenant love that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. Move and mobilize our hearts, Lord, for your global glory among the nations. Shift and change our direction. Shift our church generally as a whole and each of us individually. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you ever feel like you're burdened with the wrong burdens? I mean, you feel the burden, but is this even the right burden to have and feel? Like your life is unnecessarily harder than it has to be. If you could just change your mindset, then maybe your burdens would lighten up and change, or maybe your burden would just disappear. Unnecessary burdens. The Christmas rush is burdensome for some of us, isn't it? And you guys feeling the burden of the Christmas rush? I'm going to take the next six minutes now and read an extended article, story, a fictional story by C.S. Lewis called Xmas and Christmas, the lost chapter of Herodotus. I actually emailed it to you, the church email, so if you want to read along with me, you can, but you can just listen. Now, let me just give two explainers. This is fictional, but he's talking about Great Britain. C.S. Lewis was a Brit. So it's about Great Britain, and he uses, he refers to the gods, the Greek gods of Zeus as the good god, and Kronos, the evil god. So he uses Greek mythology here. But it's a fictional account about Xmas and Christmas, all right? Listen in. He talks about it, and he says, quote, And beyond this, there lies in the ocean, turned toward the west and north, the island of Nyaturb, which Hecateus indeed declares to be the same size and shape of Sicily, but it is larger, though in calling it triangular, a man would not miss the mark. Again, speaking of England. It is densely inhabited by men who wear clothes not very different from other barbarians who occupy the northwestern parts of Europe, though they do not agree with them in language. These islanders, surpassing all the men of whom we know in patience and endurance, use the following customs. In the middle of winter... When fogs and rains most abound, they have a great festival which they call Xmas. And for 50 days they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, 
Every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. But the pictures represent birds sitting on branches or trees with a dark green prickly leaf or else men in such garments as the Nyaturbians believe that their ancestors wore 200, 200 years ago riding in coaches such as their ancestors used or houses with snow on their roofs. roofs. And the Nyaturbians are unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with the festival, guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them, so that there is great labor and weariness. But having bought as many as they supposed to be sufficient, they return to their houses and find there the like cards which others have sent to them. And when they find cards from any to whom they also have sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor is at least over for another year. But when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the sender. And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put the, on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. And let this account suffice about Xmas cards. They also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him so that he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts for one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. For the sellers, understanding the custom, put forth all kinds of trumpery and whatever, being useless and ridiculous, they have been unable to sell throughout the year. They now sell as an Xmas gift. And though the Nyaturbians profess themselves to lack sufficient necessary things such as metal, leather, wood, and paper, yet an incredible quantity of these things is wasted every year being made into gifts. But during these 50 days, of the, during these 50 days the oldest, poorest, most, most miserable of the citizens put on false beards and red robes and walk about the marketplace being disguised, in my opinion, as Kronos. And the sellers of gifts, no less than the purchasers, become pale and weary because, the because of the crowds and the fog, so that any man who came into a Nyaturbian city at this season would think some great public calamity had fallen on Nyaturb. The 50 days of preparation is called, in their barbarian speech, the Xmas rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted from the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening, they eat five times as much supper as on other days, and crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas, they are very grave, being internally disordered by the supper and the drinking and reckoning how much they have spent on gifts and on the wine. For wine is so dear among the Nyaturbians that a man must swallow the worth of a talent before he is well intoxicated. Such then are the customs about the Xmas. You guys following so far? Such then are the customs about the Xmas. But the few among the Nyaturbians have also a festival separate and to themselves called Christmas, which is on the same day as 
Xmas. And those who keep Christmas doing the opposite of the majority of the night turbians rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they can partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adorning the child. The reason for these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I, which I know but do not repeat. But I myself conversed with a priest in one of these temples and asked him why they kept Christmas on the same day as Xmas, for it appeared to me inconvenient. But the priest replied, it is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas, but would that Zeus would put it in the minds of the Nyaturbians to keep Xmas at some other time or not to keep it at all. For Xmas and the rush distract the minds even of, a few, of the few from the sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas, but in Xmas there is no merriment left. And when I asked him why they endured the rush, he replied, it is, O stranger, a racket. Using as, I suppose, the words of some oracle and speaking unintelligible to me, for a racket is an instrument which the barbarians use in a game called tennis. But what Hecateus says, that Xmas and Christmas are the same, is not credible. For first, the pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards have nothing to do with the sacred story which the priests tell about Christmas. And second, secondly, the most part of the Nyaturbians, not believing the religion of the few, nevertheless send the gifts and cards and participate in the rush and drink, wearing paper caps. But it is not likely that men, even being barbarians, should suffer so many and great things in honor of a God they do not even believe in. And now... Enough about Nyaturb. That's a good contrast. I don't know if that helps you feel. I know it's long. You might need to chew on that a little bit. But it really strikes at what, what us losing focus during Christmas, right? We get burdened with gifts, cards, who gave what, and we forget the main things, the important things. We become unnecessarily burdened by the Christmas or the Xmas rush. And this morning, I want you to be free from unnecessary burdens by feeling and embracing the weight of the true, the necessary, and the life-giving burdens. Psalm 147 reorients our hearts on our true burden and our true privilege. Peter prayed earlier in the prayer of petition that God would save us from small-mindedness. And that's what I want to do today. So here's the main goal from Psalm 147 and then applied to our sermon and missions. Here's the main goal. Praise our glorious, our gloriously global God. That's the Psalm. Okay, that's the main point of the, of the Psalm. Praise our gloriously global God. And here's my application of missions. So that you are burdened to live for his global glory. Okay? Psalm 147. Praise our gloriously global God so that you are burdened to live for his global glory. Now, I want you to notice some commands in this psalm. Look at verse 1. Hallelujah. There's a command to praise Yahweh. How good it is to sing to our God, for praise is pleasant and lovely. So praise God, sing to God. Look at verse 7. The command is sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, play the lyre to our God. Look at verse 12. Exalt Yahweh. Praise your God. So the command is clear. 
praise our gloriously global God. That's the command. That's the main goal. And the point of that for this sermon is so that you are burdened to live for his global glory. So, let me give you, first of all, five reasons to praise our gloriously global God. And then I want to give you three reasons to um, live for the spreading of the glory of this, glo- this globally glorious God. Okay? So five reasons, and the five reasons are, are the psalm. So if I was expositing just this psalm and not applying it to missions, I'd spend all time on this. I'm not going to spend the rest of our time on these five points. I'm going to try to go through them somewhat quick, quickly so I can apply it to us living for the, for the glory of God or for, the, for God's global glory. Okay, so five reasons to praise our gloriously global God. Before I get into these five reasons, let me just say a word about praise. Is God selfish? Is God selfish for for commanding us to praise him? Is God insecure for calling us to praise him? When I say selfish, I don't mean self-centered. For us, that means the same thing. But when I say selfish, I mean looking out for myself to the detriment of others. Right? If, I become, if PJ becomes selfish and self-centered for me because I'm not God, then it actually leads to the detriment of others. Is God selfish in asking us, in calling us to praise him? Does that lead to ours and others' detriment? What if I, and so God commands us to praise, right? That's what the psalm does. God commands us to praise. What if I stood up this Sunday behind this pulpit and said the main goal of my sermon is that you would praise PJ and live for PJ and be devoted fully to PJ's glory? You would... Stop, you'd cut the mic and you'd kick me out. And you would have to do that. You should do that. And C.S. Lewis also struggled with God saying, he says, that's what God sounds like. God, he says, God sounds like an old woman asking for praises. Tell me how pretty I am. Tell me how beautiful I am. An insecure person. And here's what C.S. Lewis said that got him through this conundrum, this complex problem in his mind. Why does God want us to praise him? He said this, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously flows out in praise. You hear that? All enjoyment spontaneously flows out in praise. He continues, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. C.S. Lewis realized that we can't help but praise everything we value. And he continues, he says this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The joy is incomplete until it is expressed. Do you guys hear that? Praise, speaking about the goodness of someone or something, it expresses joy. Praise completes joy. Praise consummates and climaxes joy. Praise increases joy. So if God is calling us to praise him, what does he want to increase in us? Our what? Our joy. He wants us to express our joy. He wants us to complete our joy. He wants to consummate and climax our joy. When he calls us to praise him. And that makes sense if God is truly our joy. So if God is your joy, let us express and complete and consummate and climax and increase our joy in him again and again. 
If you're not a Christian, I want to ask you a question. Thank you for being here if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, here's my question for you. What do you praise? What do you enjoy? What do you delight in? If you could look through your messages and your emails and your text messages and your social media posts, what do you delight in? When you talk to people and your friends and what excites you? What do you like talking about? Because it not only expresses your joy, but it completes your joy. For Christians, God is our joy and we should praise God from our joy. Now, let me give you these five reasons why to praise God briefly. Well, some of them briefly, too briefly. Verses two through six, we praise God for the glory of his redemption. Praise God for the glory of his redemption. Look at verse two and three, or verse two. Yahweh rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers his exiled Israel. He gathers Israel's exiled people. So what is God doing here? He's rebuilding what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And who's he gathering? His what? Israel, his exiled people. Now remember, Judah was exiled. Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And Israel, Judah was exiled. And so God says, even though the temple and the city was destroyed, through Ezra, he started to restore the people. Through Nehemiah, he rebuilt the wall. And through Zerubbabel, he rebuilt the temple. So he's restoring the law covenant. He's restoring the walls of Jerusalem. He's restoring the temple. God rebuilt Jerusalem over a few hundred years after it was after the exile. And he gathered his people back to Israel, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. And so we should praise God, or at least the, the, the original here should praise God, because God, God's the one who rebuilds Jerusalem. He's the one who gathers his exiled, exiled people. Now notice I said the word redemption. Why did I say the word redemption? Okay, by biblical theology, question here, quiz. When you hear redemption in the Old Testament, what are you supposed to picture immediately? Church? Yes. Some of you said Exodus, or I heard Ross, I heard a few others, right? Exodus, yes, I want you to think that. When you think of redemption as a new covenant Christian, what should you think of? The cross, right? The cross and resurrection. If you're, but you're of an Old Testament, if you're an Old Covenant saint, an Old Testament saint, whenever you hear redemption, how we are cross-centered, you should think splitting the Red Sea-centered, Passover-centered, angel of death sweeping across Israel. That, that is your picture of redemption. God redeemed us out of slavery in Egypt and freed us to be his people. That is redemption. Now, in Isaiah, when Isaiah starts talking about the second, he starts talking about the gathering of Israel and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, he talks about it in terms of a second exodus. A second exodus. Which means this regathering and rebuilding is redemption. It's a prophecy about a future redemption. Not from Egypt, but from exile. And so God is gathering people to himself, and that's why we should praise him for his redemption. Now, has God gathered you to himself? Has he gathered his new covenant people to himself? Yes or no? Yes, yes right? According to Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, he has gathered us and brought us to his heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12 uses the language of a heavenly Jerusalem. God rebuilds Jerusalem and gathers his people to Jerusalem. You, brother and sister... If you've been saved by Christ, you have been gathered to Christ. And you are, even right now as you're seated here, you're seated in the heavenly places in Christ, and you are gathered in the heavenly Jerusalem right now. And God is gathering his people. So you should praise God for redeeming you in Christ. Look at verse 3. 
God heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. God heals us of physical pains. He helps us by bringing justice to our, our, our oppression and brings down the wicked according to verse 6. Yahweh helps the oppressed but brings the wicked to the ground. So he's healing us of our physical pains. He's freeing us and he will break all oppression in the end and injustice. Look at verse 4. God counts the number of stars and he gives names to all of them. How many stars are there? A lot, right? I looked it up, and there's two ways of saying it. There are sextillion stars, sextillion stars, but it's called sextillion stars, or 200 billion trillion stars. I don't even know what, like, what does that even mean? There are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe, and God counts them. It says in verse 4, he gives names to all of them. There are 100 trillion stars in our Milky Way galaxy alone. So if you can think about 200 billion trillion stars, God knows them, counts them, and names them. Can we grasp the knowledge of God? Look at verse 5. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is what? His understanding is infinite. No, we can't grasp this. So we say with the psalmist from Psalm 8, 3 and 4, when I observe your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? What is a human being that you remember him? What is a son of man that you look after him? Who are we, God, that you even know us and think about us? So praise God for his redemption. We'll come back to that later. Number two, praise God for the glory of his provision. Verses seven through nine. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Play the lyre to our God. Why? What does God do in verses 8 and 9? He covers the sky with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He causes grass to grow on the hills. So the grass, the food you eat, all the stuff that comes from plants, God is the one who causes that to grow. And it grows by water. Who, who provides water? Who provides rain? Who provides rain? God provides rain. So praise God for his provision. Then he provides rain and plants for our oxygen, and for our food, and for our mental health. Plants are beautiful. They're wonderful. Landscaping is great. It is healthy for our minds and our bodies and our souls. And God is the one who provides it. It says in verse 9, he provides the animals with their food, even the young ravens, what they cry for. Last week I was with, um, I was texting the, the pastors, and I, or it might have been the interns, but I saw a bird uh, flying. I was just kind of just praying and exercising, walking, and then I just saw like a bird just kind of fly across, and I thought, God, you said that you provide for the birds of the sky. That bird right now that's flying across, you provide for that bird. Of course you're going to provide for me. So I started thinking about Matthew 6, and I look at a flower, and I'm like, Lord, you clothe the flowers, you've clothed the grass of the field with flowers. Of course you're going to provide my needs. Of course you're going to take care of me. That's what, that's what God is saying here. Praise God for the glory of his provision. See it. See God's provision when you walk outside that the sun, I mean, you could just see the sunlight if you look out these uh, stained glass windows, if you like them. If not, try to ignore the stained glass windows part. But you see the sunlight. Why is there a sun? Because God provides. Number three. Praise God for the glory of his redemption, the glory of his provision. Number three, praise God for the glory of his attention. Look at verses 10 and 11. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
the glory of his attention. God is not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a warrior. So notice this, God is not impressed. When it says the strength of a horse, it's not just saying, well, what's so impressive about horses? When he says a warrior, he's talking about, we, um, back then, they were impressed by military power. If your nation had military power, that was impressive. That's what made your, your, your nation strong, which is why the Spartans focused all of their chips and put all of their investment in military might, as opposed to Athens, which invested in education, and one was more long-sustaining. But, but for a lot of people in those ancient cultures, they would put their, in, their, their might, their investment in military power, and so when you saw a strong military, man, you were impressed. You were impressed. And so horses are like the cavalry, the chariots, the tanks. God's not impressed by tanks. He's not impressed by the, 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 the power of the might of an army. And then it says in the, verse 10, nor does he value the power of a warrior, the infantry, the foot soldiers. Whether they're on horses, battle horses, which is really impressive to them. Whether they're powerful warriors with a powerful multitude of men in an infantry. God is not impressed by military might. We could further what God is not impressed by. God is not impressed by popularity, like we might be. God is not impressed by artistry, like we might be. God is not impressed by influence of people. He's not impressed by the wealth of people. He's not impressed by the knowledge of people. He's not impressed by the strength and the, the physical might of people. He's not impressed by the health of people. He's not impressed by your beauty. He's not impressed by your wisdom. He's not impressed by your information. He's not impressed by your connections. What is God impressed by? What does get, what gets God's attention? Look at verse 11. What does God take pleasure in? The Lord values, the Lord delights in, the Lord takes pleasure in whom? In those who what? Fear him. And those who what? Put their hope in his faithful covenant love. This is critical. God, this is like Isaiah 66 too, where God says, who is the one to whom I'll look? To the one who is humble and broken in spirit, contrite. The one who trembles at my word. Those are the ones God values. That's the one God delights in. What, is it to, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but what does it mean to fear the Lord? Here's my short definition. Fearing the Lord means that we have a joyful and supreme reverence for who God is that frees us to do all God says. You get that? It's, being, it's a supreme reverence for who God is that frees our will to happily do all God says. Obeying God moves from drudgery and obligation to joy and delight when you fear God. Let me put it in Jesus' terms. To fear God means you see the supreme value of Christ, that you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. He's worth it. Jesus is better. And once that supreme reverence captivates your heart, you're free. You're free to obey God no matter what trial you go through. That's what God takes delight in. Those are the ones God values. Those who hope in his covenant love, his saving love. So if you're not a Christian, let me tell you about God's covenant love. 
Because I want God to value you. I want God to delight in you. I want you to please God. And you're not pleasing God by your job. You're not pleasing God by your stats. You're not pleasing God by your finances and your wealth and the things you are pursuing in this world. Here's how you have a relationship with God. You gotta understand four things about God. God is your creator. He made you to know and enjoy him above all. He made you in his image. God is also your judge. Because you and I have rebelled against God, we deserve to be damned and thrown into hell for our sins. You deserve to be thrown into hell for your sins. God is your judge. But thirdly, God is the Messiah. God became a man. God the Son became a man, took on human flesh. That's Christmas. And he became a man to become the Messiah, the King, who would live the life we should have lived, die on the cross for your sins, and rise from the dead so that God would also become your treasure, that he'd be your Lord, Savior, and treasure, that he becomes, because he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, he will forgive you of all your sins. He'll change your heart. He'll give you a relationship with him. And as you trust in him and repent from your sins and repent from your righteousness, he gives you his Holy Spirit to live in you so that you enjoy him, so that you delight to do what you ought to do, so that God's value becomes so supreme in your life that it breaks the bondage and lies of sin so that you're free now to know and enjoy him. God promises that to you through Jesus Christ, the son of God who became the Messiah. God the son who became the son of God as the Messiah to save you. So if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. That's another way of me telling you, fear the Lord. Those are the ones that God takes delight in. And that offer is here to you this morning. So if you want to press, impress God and value his value and his attention, trust in Jesus. Now, if you're discouraged this morning and saying, man, PJ, I hear that and my heart is like generally free, like I am a Christian, but I still feel like the, the temptations and the burdens and the lies of this world and of my flesh and of the devil captivating my heart and I don't feel fully free. And you telling me that my heart has to be free, it, um, it's discouraging me. Like it, it makes it look like God's only looking at the, the, the really mature Christians and not the Christians like me who are struggling right now. I want to encourage you, if you're discouraged, to please and attract God's approving pleasure is to fear him, not to fix yourself. Not to dominate the competition. Not to take that hill for Jesus. Not to meet your spiritual goals. If you want to impress God, if you want God's approval, God is saying, stop trying so hard. Give it up. Just rest in my son. Trust me. God is pleased with the desperate and the discouraged who look to him. When you keep trying to fix yourself and you're, looking, you're taking 10 looks at yourself and only one look at Jesus, you'll never get there. God's saying, chill. Look at me. I got you. And God is pleased in that because your hope is in whom? Christ. And God loves to glorify Christ. He loves to glorify himself. If you're discouraged, you don't have to fix yourself. Just let it go. All right, that's the third one. 
Praise God for his attention, the glory of his attention. Praise God he is not impressed by these other things. Number four, praise God for the glory of his protection. That's in verses 12 through 14. There's the command in 12, look at verse 13. God strengthens the bars of your city's gates. He blesses your children within you. He endows your territory with prosperity or peace. He satisfies you with the finest wheat. What do we see here? God protects the city walls. He protects the gates. He protects you. And I love this because I do this to my children almost every night. I did miss it last night, kids. But I try to bless my kids every night. But look at verse 13. It says, he blesses your children within you. Who's the one who ultimately needs to bless my kids? God does. That's why when I bless them, I'm not giving them my blessing. I can't bless them. I say, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh look on you with favor and give you peace. Because as much as I love my children, I can't bless them. The Lord has to do it. And here, it says, God blesses your children within you. Praise God that he protects us. That he's the one who blesses our children and gives us peace. And he provides our daily bread, verse 14. And then lastly, fifth reason to praise God. Praise God for the glory of his redemption, for the glory of his provision. Praise God for the glory of his attention. Fourth, praise God for the glory of his protection. Lastly here, number five, praise God for the glory of his declaration, verses 15 through 20. Verses 15 through 20. Look at 15 through 18. God declares two things here, and you, you're used to one. Number two, you're used to number two, but let me give you number one first. God's declaration is to his creation, or in creation, and then God's declaration in redemption. Or God's declaration in providence, and God's declaration in redemption. You know this one. This is what we're doing all the time here on Sundays at BBC and when you read your Bible. You're always thinking about God's declaration of redemption. So let me take a, a minute or two on God's declaration of creation and providence. Look at verses 15 through 18. He sends his command, that's his word, throughout the earth. What is he doing? His word runs swiftly. But what is his word doing in 16 through 18? He spreads snow like wool with his word. He scatters frost like ashes with his word. He throws his hailstones like crumbs with his word. Who can withstand his cold? God sends his word and melts the cold. God unleashes his winds and the water flows with his word. So this is God's word, not in redemption, but God's word in providence, in creation. Listen to Psalm 29. You could turn there if you're fast enough, but I'm already there. I got a head start on you. Let me read Psalm 29, 3 through 8. I want you to listen to the power of God's word. It's not about redemption. It's about creation and providence. Listen. The voice of Yahweh is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh above the vast water, the voice of Yahweh in power, the voice of Yahweh in splendor. Listen to this now. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars, the trees. Yahweh shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes, the, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And then listen to this one, verse 9, last, last verse here. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. Even animals giving birth, you know how they give birth? By the word of whom? Yahweh. In his temple, all cry glory. And I like that, because what is his temple? The whole earth is his temple. In his temple, God's word is working everywhere, and all cry glory. I don't know who the last baby born in our church was. I think it's Ian. Is it Ian? Is Ian the youngest baby in our church? Is there a baby after Ian? Um, 
But if I think about Ian's birth, I mean, me and Francis were at the birthing center this week. We're going through the process of what we're going to do. But every birth, the contractions, the labor, the delivery of the child, you know how that happens? By the word of whom? By the word of Yahweh. And if God doesn't uphold anything with his word, the deer doesn't give birth. The snow doesn't melt. The sun doesn't rise. The rain doesn't fall. The grass doesn't grow. The oxygen that you're supplied with right now by the air cycle of you with plants, that stops. You die. God upholds the world by the word of his power. Not just one time when he created the world. Right now, every moment, the only reason your clothes are still on you and your body is holding together and your bones are still together right now is because God is actively speaking you and sustaining you right now. If he stopped, you would stop. God's word is all over this world. Everything you see right now as you just look around, everything without exception is a result of God currently and actively speaking, declaring his word. This is why everyone owes him, owes him honor and glory, whether you're a Christian or not. doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. You're like, well, I have a different God. I have a different view. doesn't matter. You're standing and living right now because he created you and he's sustaining you right now. The, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it doesn't matter what view you have. This is the God upholding you right now. So we need to praise God for his declaration to creation. But let's go, not only that, his declaration and redemption. Look at verses 19 and 20 to finish off the psalm. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. He has not done this for every nation. They do not know his judgments. Hallelujah. So it's not just God's word in creation and providence. God gives his saving word to whom? Verse 19. To who? To Jacob. His statutes and judgments to Israel, that's not Jacob, just Jacob himself, one person. Jacob and Israel is whom? The whole, the whole what? Nation, the whole old covenant nation. God gives his declaration to his holy nation and he doesn't declare it to every nation, but to his holy nation. All right, so let me just recap here. Do you guys see the glory of God's redemption? The glory of his provision? The glory of his attention? The glory of his protection? And the glory of his declaration all over this world? Do you see that? For those five reasons, those mercies, we ought to praise God. And just like the song says, come thou fount. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for what? Songs of what? Loudest? Praise. Because the mercies never stop. And they're not always the same mercies. They just stream moment after moment after moment. God is just streaming mercies to all of us. And it is unceasing. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. The streams of the mercy of redemption, the mercy of provision, the mercy of attention, the mercy of protection, the mercy of declaration. This global glory of God calls for songs of loudest praise. So let me apply this briefly before I get to the second and apply it to missions. With, with three truths on missions. Kids, kids, how many of you kids, raise your hand kids, if you are learning an instrument, a musical instrument, raise your hand. Raise it, raise it high. Well, that's a lot of you. You know what? It, okay, you can put your hands down. Do you guys know in verse 7 it says, play the lyre, that's a musical instrument, to our God. So let me tell you kids something. Those of you who are learning music, and those of you who know how to play instruments, play your instrument to our God. Whatever instrument you play, play it to God. Play it for God. 
Play it to spread the joy and glory of God. That's why your parents are paying for these lessons. That's why I'm paying for these lessons. I want you to learn basic music theory, kids, my kids, but I want you to learn to play it. Play the music to our God. And some of you kids, how many of you kids are not learning a musical instrument? Raise your hand. Proud. Yeah, that's me. That's me. Don't worry. I'm, I'm with you guys. That's how I grew up. Okay, good. Now for you, guess what? You still have a musical instrument. It's called your voice. Learn how to sing. Play the musical instrument of your voice to our God. And Ross has another instrument. Your, your hands clapping. Yeah. Clap to God. Whatever instrument you have, stomp to God. Dance to God. Use your instruments to glorify God. Here's another application to all of you generally, and to the kids, at least the older kids, but also all adults. What is on your playlist? What's on your musical playlist? What are you listening to? What do you listen to in your downtime, on your commute, while you're relaxing or studying? I'm not saying it all has to be Christian, but how much of it is? Here's an exhortation. Stream songs to praise and sing to God. Stream songs in your playlist that are about God. Exalt God, our globally glorious God. Church family, let's keep singing as a church. Don't look at singing as a mere duty. Sing and think about the words. Hear and feel the music. Follow the melody. Enjoy, sing harmony. If you're like me and you can't sing harmony or melody, <laughs> um, if you can't sing harmony, um, Enjoy the other people singing harmony and melody around you. Let the music and the words and the message draw you to God in a special and powerful way. Let each song do it in its own unique way. Not all songs are the same. God is worthy of all our praise. Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know how you keep your heart close to God when you sing? You think about the words. You think about the phrases. You meditate on each phrase and you try to own it while you sing it. That will help you to worship God. Okay, so praise our gloriously global God so that you are burdened to live for his global glory. And I wanted to focus on, not the burden, I wanted you to focus on the glory of God. Now, there's two things I, I hope to shape in you as a pastor here. One of them you hear almost all the time. The second one you don't hear too often. Well, you hear it a little bit, but you may not, not pick up on it. There's two th One thing I want you to, to grow in as you're a member at this church, for however long you're a member here, is I want you to grow in learning how to read your Bible with a congregational lens. So when you read the Bible, you know how to apply it not just to yourself, but you read it with our church family in mind. How does this apply to us as a church? I hope you're growing in that. But a second thing I want you to grow in is reading your Bible in such a way that you're always seeing what you're reading in light of the big plan of God and the global goal of the gospel spreading to all nations. So you, know, you might hear me say this phrase regularly. I mean all of this in it, but I don't explain it. I say, we live for our neighbors and the nations. You guys hear me say that? I don't just say our neighbors. I would say our neighbors and the nations. And the reason for that is because what I'm saying is, I want you to always think of your Christian life for God's glory, not just for your neighbors, but for the unreached language groups, the nations of the world. And I want you to always read your Bible with that burden on your heart, or often read your Bible with that burden on your heart. And so, let me try to do that. And so, because some of you said, when you read Psalm 147, how is this about missions, right? I mean, you look at this and you said, PJ, I'm looking at the Psalm, you're going to preach on missions. What? This is not about missions. Well, 
You can almost read any passage in the Bible and make it about missions. This one has at least, I had more truths, but I had to cut down to three. I had five, but I'm only going to give you three. Three truths that should burden you for God's global glory. Okay, you guys ready for this? Three truths to burden you for God's global glory. Truth number one is in verse two. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers Israel's exiled people. Who's the one rebuilding Jerusalem? The Lord. Who's the one gathering his exiled people? The Lord. Now he says Jerusalem and then people. Jerusalem is, the people are a people. Jerusalem is a what? Place, a city. It's a place, it's a city, right? Jerusalem is a place. The people, Israel, are a people. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Bible smashes together people and place into one idea often. I'll give you two examples. Look at Psalm 147, verse 12. Exalt Yahweh, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. Is he telling the city, like the building and the location to praise God? When he says praise God, Jerusalem, who's he talking about? The people of Jerusalem, right? People in place. If I say, um, stop oppressing the poor, America. Or if I say, um, let's work for the justice for unborn babies, America. If I say that, I'm not talking about the place. Who am I talking to? People, but I'm using place. You see, the, you see how they're smashed together? You guys get that? So in, in Revelation 21, 9 and 10, you don't have to turn there now for the sake of time, but read Revelation 21, 9 and 10. It says this. John sees this vision of the new earth or the new Jerusalem, like, you know, that God's going to wipe away every tear and all that. And then the angel turns to John and says, I'm going to show you the wife of the lamb. I'm going to show you now, John, the wife of the lamb. Who's the wife of the lamb? The Say it louder. Who's the wife of the lamb? The church. the church. So he says, let me show you the wife of the lamb. Revelation 21, 9. You know what verse 10 says? Then I saw the city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. And the rest of those verses are describing the dimensions and the gold and all the minerals and stones that make up the city. The foundations and the gates of pearl. And you're like... Let me show you the wife of the lamb. Then I saw a city come down. A city is the wife? What do we have here? The smashing together of people and place. So when it says God is rebuilding Jerusalem, he's rebuilding his people, which is a place. This helps me make sense of John 14, 1 and 2. Where Jesus says, the night before he's about to die, he tells his disciples, they're all sad, right? He says, let, your, let, let, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If I go, you guys know this, if I go, I go to what? Prepare a what? A place for you. How long should it take Jesus to prepare a place? How long should it take him? He just says it, right? You know why it's taking him long? It's not the place part, it's the people part. God has chosen to save his people in time. He can't snap his fingers and save people in time because for him to save people in time, time has to what? Progress. He, I got saved in 1989. I'm part of the place that God is preparing for the end. And until God brings all of his people in, he's still preparing a what? 
a place. And he's going to save people from every tribe, nation, people, and language, right? And until he brings them all in, what is he rebuilding? His place. He's preparing a place. I mean, just think about it. We're going we're to baptize Brave, Lord willing, right, in a few minutes. It would not be a complete place if Brave wasn't there, right? But Brave had to get saved first. Because who's, who's preparing the place? Jesus is. God is. Who's rebuilding Jerusalem? God is. God is the missionary God. God is the one saving people here in Los Angeles. God is the one saving people in Central Asia where our missionary is. God is the one saving and rebuilding his place and his people to prepare a place for you and for me. God is a missionary God. And Psalm 147.2 is a missionary verse. Do you guys see it? This is a globally missionary verse. God is gathering his people. Praise God that he's gathering his people. Now he does it through us. That's a great commission. But God, Jesus Christ, is the one gathering his people. Now that's the first truth, okay? Second truth. Second mission's truth. I want you to feel that you get to be part of this. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. He counts the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. You're saying, how, how, 200 billion trillion stars, PJ. What does that have to do with missions? I don't think this is referring primarily to stars in the sky. Does this remind you of any other verse in the Bible? Abraham. Genesis 15, 5. Abraham, go outside and count the stars. So shall your offspring be. Right? If you are able to count them. He said, so your, off, your offspring will be that numerous. And that's not just in Genesis. That's throughout the Bible. Listen to Jeremiah 33:22. Even the stars of heaven cannot be counted. So too, even as the stars of heaven cannot be counted, so too I will make innumerable the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who minister to me. So the sons of Abraham are going to be as numerous as what? The stars in the sky, right? And then who are these sons of Abraham? Who are these descendants of Abraham? Clark read it in Galatians 3. That was our scripture reading. Galatians 3, 7 says this. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. The scripture saw in advance that God would justify the nations, the Gentiles, by faith in Jesus and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations, all the ethnic people groups will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham. So when God counts the 200 billion trillion stars in the universe or the 100 trillion stars in the Milky Way, we're like, man, God's wisdom is infinite. What about when God knows everyone's story of every one of his people from every tribe and nation and people and language? He knows them all. He counts them all. He names them all. God counts everyone who's going to be saved. So as we're thinking and praying for the K family right now in Central Asia, there are people there that God has already counted and he's about to save them through their time there. Here we are giving. We're thinking about missions. We're praying for missions. Some of us are thinking about going to missions. You know why God is preparing some of you? Because God has counted people where you're going to go. And he's going to do it. There are sons of Abraham. There are daughters of Abraham here in your neighborhood and among the nations. And he has counted them. Are they going to be saved? Yes or no? Is there any chance that they might not be saved? Yes or no? 
No, there's no chance. God's got it. He's going to save them. You get to be part of it. We get to be part of God's work. Now, if we're not part of it, God's still going to do it. But we get to be part of it. And he'll save people from, again, every nation and tribe and people language. That's Revelation 7, 9, and 10. God is sovereign. God is unstoppable. God is inevitable. These people are going to be saved. Nobody can stop him. God has predestined to save people from every tribe, from every people language group. God knows each person by name and he names them. He saves them. He will do it. He promised to. He, he chose to use Abraham. He chose to use the psalmist. He chose to use the apostles. He chose to use the early church. He chooses to use Bethany Baptist Church. He chooses to use you and he chooses to use every Christian who's already saved. That's the second truth. God counts all his people. The third missionary truth about God's global glory that should burden us to be part of it is in verses 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. He has not done this for every nation. Who's the, one, who's the declarer? Who's the preacher? According to verse 19. God is. Who's the gospelizer? God is. Who's the missionary who goes to preach and declare his word to save his people? God does. Now God does it through whom? Through us, his people, the church. Jesus is the, Jesus is the one who does this, but he identifies so closely to the church that when Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus identifies with the church. Jesus says, if they reject me, they will also reject you. If they receive my word, they will also receive your word. Jesus identifies with his people such that when the K's are overseas declaring the word, Jesus is the one declaring the word through them. He's identified with his people. God did not give this to every nation. But you know why God gave this to his nation? According to Genesis 12 with Abraham, Abraham was going to have a nation. They were blessed to be a blessing to the nations. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Jose preached on 1 Peter 2 last week, but Exodus 19, 5 and 6, he made Israel his holy nation, his royal priesthood to mediate God's blessing. In, in Isaiah 49, 6, God said, he prophesied in this new Exodus that he will make Israel or make his servant a light to the nations. Paul and Barnabas take that verse and they apply it to themselves. Hey, you know that light to the nations that the servant's supposed to be? That's us. And then what Jose preached last week, we are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. God has given BBC his word. You are the holy nation. Did God give you that word just to keep it to yourself? No. He gave it to you for your neighbors and for the unreached nations, the unreached language groups. That's why God gave it to you. He blessed you to be a blessing so that you would pour out your lives to mediate his blessing to others. So that's why we should be burdened for missions. Because God will gather and rebuild his people slash place. I hate that I said slash like in a verbal way, a, a, a picture thing. Sorry about that. His people and place. God will, uh, secondly, God is um, counting all his people. And thirdly, God is the one who will declare himself to the people. So I, I didn't want to do the, the sermon on missionary stats this year. But I'll just say them briefly. There are 1,800 people groups with no Bible in their language. 
No Bible translation in their language. That's a problem for us, church. There are 7,416 unreached people groups. That means less than 2% evangelical. There are 33,050 un unengaged people groups. That means there is no Christian who knows their culture and language. All of them are going to face God's judgment. Less than 2% of all Christian giving in America is given to go to unreached ethnic language groups. Less than 2%. Less than 2 cents on the dollar. And, that, and while, we're, while I'm saying all those things, here's what I'm saying today from the psalm. God will gather his people. God will rebuild his Jerusalem. God will count and secure each of his people from all of these ethnic language groups. And God will declare his saving word to them through his people, through us and through many others. So brothers and sisters, praise our gloriously global God so that you're burdened to live for his global glory. Let me give some um, application now. Consider going. Consider going. William Carey um, wrote, expect great things from God or expect great things, attempt great things. He was telling the church, because he was, he was in 1792, they were saying only the apostles have the great commission. And he's like, no, we all have the great commission. Everyone needs to expect great things and attempt great things. So some of you need to go to the nations. So two ways you could do it is learn by joining our reading group. I have three people that I could see one one person's out of town. Two, I can see three people that want to join the Let the Nations Be Glad reading group. Join our group and read with us January through April to read through the book. But stand up and be prayed for. Tell me, say, PJ, I, want to, I, want, I think God is calling me to missions and I want to seriously invest in missions and, and seriously consider whether I should go. But no, most of us are not going to go. So here's what I want to tell you. All of you should consider going. But all of us need to be senders and supporters. Andrew Fuller, who was the partner with William Carey, William Carey, when he left to India, he told Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the pit, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. Missionaries, need to, missionaries out there need us to hold the ropes here. And so Andrew Fuller became the president of a Baptist Mission Society. He traveled all over the British Isles, raising funds and preaching on missions. And so the missionaries could focus and concentrate on their mission because he knew that there were people back here praying for them, talking about missions, raising funds, and supporting them. So you need to be a good church member, a faithful member who's giving and growing and gospelizing and loving each other because you are part of this global mission just by you doing what you do here. I want you to connect the dots. You sharing takeaways today, here, is a global ministry. It's an act for God's global glory. You're like, what? I'm just sharing a takeaway. You have too small a view of what you're doing as you sit here and listen to the sermon attentively. You sitting here listening to God's word prayerfully has a global impact. You just need to mentally connect those dots. You gathering every Sunday here and all the churches that gather wherever they gather, it's a global act for God's global glory. As you lean in and say, God, change me, change us, help us, grow us, because we're all connected for God's global glory. All right, so to, let, me, let me close by concluding. Here's my, here's my call to action now. And I want to kind of capitalize what Peter said earlier about being small-minded. Here's my, if I had to give you an application in two words, it's this. Don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle for a small view of God. Don't settle for a small view of the Great Commission. Don't settle for a small view of Psalm 147. 
Don't settle for a small view of your life and your ministry. Don't settle for a small view of your work in this local church. Don't settle for a small view of, of your life and your career and how it's connected. Don't settle for, small, for your small plans for your career and your life and your family and your church. God is glorious. God is gloriously globally, or God is globally glorious. And he alone is worthy of global praise and our efforts in global gospelizing. Don't settle. Don't settle. We settle too easily. We settle sinfully. We lose our eternal mindset. We lose our global responsibility. We lose our heavenly perspective. So we fall back in this world in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. We get obsessed with possessions and finances and workplaces and schools and earthly friendships and comforts. We get swept up into the Xmas rush. And we're burdened by the Xmas rush when God is burdened and wants us to be burdened for his global glory among the nations. That is the burden we ought to have. Praise God that the Son of God did not settle for the comforts of heaven. Praise God that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or held onto. Praise God that Jesus didn't settle, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Praise God that he did not settle, but he, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Praise God that he didn't settle, but God highly exalted him so that he would have the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He did not settle. Praise God that people, every star will be counted from every tribe and nation and language and people group, and they will worship and reign with him on the new earth. God did not settle. Praise God that Jesus did not settle, that he does not leave us to our sins and our selfishness and our small-mindedness. Jesus will not settle with where we are spiritually as a church and where you are individually. Praise God. Praise God that he will not settle. He will not deal with us settling. But by his grace, he will move us to grow by his love and power. Jesus will not settle. He does not settle. He did not settle. And he will not let us settle. Praise God. What are you burdened by this Christmas season? Is it the Christmas rush? Is it another burden or trial that you or our church is going through? Don't settle for those burdens being your big burdens. Lift your eyes and your heart to our gloriously global God. If you don't, you will be overwhelmed by smaller burdens. You will shrink in your perspective and you will drift from God rather than draw near to God this Christmas season. But if you don't settle, if you lift your eyes to this gloriously global God, you will experience the joy in your heart lifting you up in the midst of your heavy burdens. God will frame your perspective on your burdens and he will draw near to you. You will draw near to God rather than drift from God. So don't settle. Joyfully praise our gloriously global God so that you're burdened and blessed to live for his global glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us not to settle, but to live for your glorious, your, your, the, the, your gloriously um, 
big, large, global glory. Help us to live for it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.